Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. I was more than excited when Dr. Deborah Taylor agreed to a phone call for this podcast. I made up a huge long list of questions covering countless topics. Of course, once we started talking, I quickly realized her knowledge on each topic is so vast that she really could have an episode in itself for each question. So in this episode, we talk about laminitis and focus on the three main causes of laminitis and treatment approaches for each. Dr. Taylor will reference a few other veterinarians, including Dr. Andrew Van Epps. And if you want to hear more from him, you can go back and listen to episode 12 titled Saving the Lamina. I also have episode 22 with two ECIR members, Dr. Janie Kluwer and Dr. Kathleen Gustafson, talking about metabolic laminitis. So feel free to check that one out as well. Dr. Taylor is a podiatry-focused veterinarian in Alabama with extensive experience and research into rehabilitating laminitic horses. Working in the field, she has seen some really difficult laminitis cases and has been able to trial various approaches to see what might help in these instances. If you could just say a little bit about how you're involved in the hoof care and vet world, and if you even want to say a little bit about how you ended up there in your hoof journey. Okay, so my name is Deborah Taylor, and I grew up in central Kentucky, and I guess my first experience with foot problem was... It's kind of a corny story, really, but it's true. So, you know, it's sad and true, I guess. It was my pony that I got when I was six. And her name was Sweetie. And we I remember my parents took me to a cattle farm, and we bought her there. And, you know, no signs of lameness there. So we brought her home to my farm there in Frankfort, Kentucky. And she was kind of my world, really. And I didn't have any good guidance or anything. And... So she was turned out on grass, and she proceeded to get laminitis. And, of course, I didn't know what that was. I was six or seven years old. My memories of her during the summer, probably when I'm eight, nine, and ten, was I would go out in this really tall grass, and I remember just like on a safari parting the grass with my hands and to find her. And then I would find her, and she would be recumbent laying down where she'd probably been all day or day and a half stranded. And she had the grass all smashed down in a big, you know, 15-foot diameter area. And I would just lay down there in the cold grass with her and lay my head on her neck. And that was how we spent our time together. And we'd have vets come, and none of them really told us, hey, this grass is doing this to her. You know, we were clueless. And so, finally, we found this farrier from the Lexington area. And he, I guess, was my first hero. His name was Marvin Woodbridge. And he was a thoroughbred vet, you know, like in the Lexington area. And when he came on board, he's the one that started telling us to do the things that worked. And he told us, okay, this grass is the problem. You need to get her in a dry lot. And I'm going to come back and trim her every six weeks. And the funny thing was, is he told us, he said, she needs to be moving or have exercise. He said, is she anything that uses up energy? And he, and so he put us on a mission to breed her. I've been criticized by people since then because I was breeding insulin resistant ponies unknowingly, but he's like, you got a breeder or anything that takes care of the insulin or the, the, no, he didn't say insulin. He didn't probably even know it was insulin, but he knew she needed something that took up energy. 
And so we did that. And so a lot of my memories of growing up with my mom is our quest to go find stud ponies to breed this pony to and going to find them and my mother not being able to turn a trailer around and all these things that we did to try to help this pony. And it actually, his method worked. We, we dry lotted her, he trimmed her. And then he also told me along with breeding her, he said, I want you to ride her as much as you can. And so we literally rode the hair off her back and she had little thigh marks on her sides when she was bald. And actually, we I got a little re- local reputation for adopting these ponies. And there was five or six of them there. My girlfriend had some that were on a farm near her subdivision. And they people would bring them to us. And we would do his trimming and dry lotting. And we rode the hair off of them. There were five or six of them with hair hair loss we play hide and go seek on 300 acres on these ponies and they got well and that was you know of course extremely rewarding that that these ponies were getting well i had no idea what mr woodbridge was doing to their feet and i really probably didn't realize what he was probably doing until i met pete you know on up in 2006 so you know this would have been in the 70s that this was happening and i didn't have no idea what actually was happening so you know, I kind of look at how naive I was, and, and then I look at clients that don't know what's going on with their horse's feet, either good or bad, or they're just, you know, clueless. And then I think about me, you know, when I was young, and even when I was on up through college and graduating from vet school, I still didn't know really what had transpired back in the 70s in my barn working with Mr. Woodbridge. Then I met Pete, and then I said to myself, I bet that's what he was doing. Unfortunately, he's no longer alive to ask him, but I'm pretty sure he must have been doing a trim that was similar to a trim that Pete or another barefoot professional would do. So anyway, got in vet school, and I wanted to be a farrier, but I went to vet school because there weren't very many women farriers then, and everybody was making light of that which seems stupid now because there's so many women farriers now. But anyway, so I went to vet school and then I ended up doing an internal medicine residency at Auburn University. During that medicine residency, I was learning a lot about the pharmacology of managing like laminitis, for example. At that point during my residency, it wasn't the whole equine metabolic syndrome thing wasn't as well worked out. And so we weren't like testing for insulin and we weren't you know, this would have been, I, I graduated my residency in 95. I finished my residency in 95. So during those three years prior to that, we weren't doing a lot of insulin testing. We were doing some Cushing's testing. Really didn't have a handle on it at all. And so then I got a job working as an ambulatory clinician at Auburn. And between 95, which was the start of my job there in October of 95, between 95 and 2003, you know, I was always very interested, again, in the foot. I didn't really, still didn't know what I needed to know. I still don't know what I need to know about the foot, but I didn't know as much then. And as an internal medicine person, the university wasn't looking to me for foot answers. But as an ambulatory clinician on the field, a lot of what I was dealing with was foot problems, just like it is for other vets in the field. It's, you know, so many things that you're working with on a daily basis are associated with the foot. So I had decided that I needed to um, broaden my horizons beyond academia and try to find some more potential answers for these foot conditions. And what I had noted at that point was that I had seen some theories and some methods work in the hands of some people and not in the hands of others. And so I had seen that there was all this controversy about what works and what doesn't work. 
And I had attributed a lot of that to misapplication of a method. So somebody goes and learns something secondhand and then goes and applies it maybe to the wrong situation and then concludes that the method is fouled and that that method is no good. Along at the same time I'm watching that happen, I'm also watching horses in my care before I really knew any specific things to do outside of academia for laminitis cases. I had also seen horses in my care either recovering from laminitis or not recovering from laminitis. And some of the ones that were not recovering were the ones that I had given the most pharmacological interventions. And the ones that were recovering were the ones that I had just done nothing. And so, you know, the one thing was I admitted myself that there was misapplication of, of methods happening in the industry. And the second thing I admitted to myself is that I had been an observer of the process and that I was not changing the outcome for the horse. I was watching what Mother Nature was having transpire and not pushing it one way or the other, you know, hopefully for the good by anything I was doing. I was just an observer of the process. And I think a lot of vets don't admit that to themselves, that they're just an observer of the process that Mother Nature has put on this horse or the pathology that's been, you know, inflicted. And because of that, then a lot of people in the industry have thought that, you know, laminitis can't be cured or laminitis can't be abated by what we do. So having those two things, okay, I'm, I've got to learn more stuff because I'm not helping these horses. And I've got to learn it from the original person and not get secondhand information from anybody. And then it's going to be my responsibility, once I get the firsthand information, it's going to be my responsibility to apply that information in the same manner, in the same situation that the original clinician or the original inventor you know, of the idea does, okay? Because I see, you know, again, people blaming a method when really it was them. And so I use an analogy from veterinary medicine on pharmacology. There's drugs. Genomycin is a very, very widely used, very good aminoglycoside antibiotic for horses. And so there's a lot of horses that would be dead right now if aminoglycoside didn't exist. But also veterinary medicine had to learn how to use them safely and appropriately. So genomycin can destroy the kidneys of a horse if you give it incorrectly. And in the history of the evolution of how understanding that drug, we thought, oh, well, if it's toxic to the kidneys, we better give these little bitty doses multiple times a day so that we don't hurt the kidneys. And what we actually found was, was accurate was when you do that, you never get a trough. And the low trough within the cycle during the day is what protects the kidneys. And so when you give those multiple doses, the bloodstream is always remaining above trough. And that's what's toxic to the kidneys. What's not toxic to the kidneys is one really high peak that then falls below trough before you give another dose. And so what we found was the opposite of what we thought. We thought that we better give these little doses, sneak them in there so the kidneys don't notice or whatever. But what we found to be true is we give this big dose one time a day and let that kill the bacteria and then let time elapse so that we get below trough. So now we give it once a day and it's very safe to use. And so in the time frame when we were hurting kidneys with that, we didn't just throw up our hands and say, genomycin's a bad drug, we should never use it. We said, no, we have to modify what we're doing, how we use it, so that we keep it safe. And so we got to think about that in hoof care. We can't just use something one time, 
with partial information or use it in the wrong scenario and then throw up our hands and say, that's a bad idea and we should never do that. You know, and in hoof care, there's no never and there's no always. And so there's all these different scenarios where different things can work. And so like on the laminitis cases, you know, I have some slides where watching all this transpire and the different types of laminitis that cause different pathologic failure of a lamina, different methods are going to be more appropriate than others. So what we did, or I tried to do with my students, was build what we called a laminitis treatment ladder. So we'd start with our basic things, and then certain categories of laminitis are going to belong on different steps of that ladder. If you were painting a house, you would never climb to the top step and start painting down. You would start painting at the bottom and work your way up with your ladder. You know, why stand on the top rung of the ladder and paint down by your feet? You wouldn't do that. So we built this laminized treatment ladder, and it's got different methods from different people on the ladder as you start at the bottom and work your way to the top. And then there's, on the side of the ladder, this sort of problem, a metabolic syndrome horse would be, this is kind of your range of the ladder where metabolic syndrome horses would most likely respond. And then if you move on up, you would get into the horses that have had SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And I think that's going to get into where I know you were interested in talking about the deep digital flexor tendon and its effect in the, the laminate, the pathology of laminitis, whether or not it's going to be necessary to do something to modify its tension during the evolution of the disease. And that is going to depend on what the etiology of the disease is, I feel like, and, and the severity. It's going to depend on both. It's a really, really deep subject. If you haven't listened to previous episodes, I'll just do a very quick recap. The three main types of laminitis are endocrinopathic or metabolic related, SIRS, or systemic inflammatory response related, and supporting limb laminitis. Each of these are caused by different triggers, and each can be approached somewhat differently to see success. Dr. Taylor starts off by talking about metabolic-related laminitis, and she mentions a study she did with Pete Ramey on 14 obese laminitic horses. I wanted to give you a little background on this so you know what she's talking about. Each of these horses were assumed to have metabolic-related laminitis. In the study, they approached the laminitis the way many of us have learned to from Pete. Address the diet, trim to reduce weight-bearing on the hoof wall and lamina, and give careful attention to heel height and comfort of movement. Make sure there is no rigid attachment to the hoof wall to allow for pressure and release of the hoof capsule and good blood flow, and offer support to the sole through boots and pads or conformable surfaces like pea gravel and medication as needed per blood work. If you want the full procedure, just Google 14 obese laminitic horses Dr. Taylor and the study should come right up. There are so many approaches that will go to tenotomy if they see rotation. And I understand about if the lamina isn't very strong, like if it's weak, then maybe the DDFT has more influence over the position of the coffin bone because the lamina isn't holding it correctly in place. But obviously with, you know, Pete's in your study that you did and that kind of approach, I've seen, I think a lot of us have seen rotation grow out without needing a tenotomy. So I didn't know... Yeah, what your thoughts were on that. Okay, so so growing out rotation without a tenotomy is what you were talking about. Yeah. Um, so Pete taught me that that was possible. And I've also learned since then that there's some situations where it's not possible. Yeah. 
And so, again, every horse is different. Every situation is different. So where would growing out without a tenotomy most likely work? Well, those 14 horses that Pete and I, I was able to observe what Pete was doing with them and document it in the case history and then go back through the case histories. It wasn't a, it wasn't an actual research project. This was a case study of 14 horses where these horses were Klein horses that were obese. Many of them weren't tested for IR or Cushing's. But I'm sure most of them were IR because they didn't have any other inflammatory disease in their background. Okay, none of them had had a fever. None of them had had acute grain overload. None of them uh, had to retain placenta. None of them had had anterior enteritis. None of them had been hospitalized for any kind of inflammatory process. So that tells me they just about had to be insulin resistant horses. Okay. You say, well, why weren't they tested? Well, they weren't tested. They were field cases. They were, most of them were in severe pain when we first found them. We never hauled them into the hospital to get a really good set of data. And, you know, in that time frame, we were kind of iffy about whether you should test a horse that's in acute pain and, and what would it mean if you did test him. And then we were going to treat them like they were insulin resistant anyway. So if a diagnostic test isn't going to change what you're going to do, why would you do it? You know, and if they respond what you're doing, then why would you test them then? So essentially, we just kind of de- declared them insulin resistant because that's what they appear to be. And we did the whole diet and exercise and hoof care program that would be appropriate for an insulin resistant horse. And they responded. And so I would work myself backwards into a diagnosis that that's what they were, metabolic syndrome horses. When I decided I was going to do the original source, I'm going to go to the original source and learn things. At that point, I decided that I have to keep an open mind about all things hoof, especially when someone has a new-to-me idea that I haven't seen before, and I'm going to have to get outside my comfort zone and look at that. I made a commitment to do that. It's been painful because I have found myself in tracks that I thought everything was going well, and someone come to me with a new idea, and I was like, la, 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 I don't want to hear that. I've got I've got this covered. i got this figured out. Leave me alone, la, la. But that's really the wrong thing to do. You know, and here's the other thing. If a client – so this, is, this was a perfect opportunity for me, and I think this is a lesson to people in the industry today that are dealing with other things. Here's the deal. A client comes to you and said, you're working, you're working down your little tunnel vision hole and you think you've got it all figured out with a method and you're going down that like a little rabbit running down this path. Everything's good. Everything's good. Don't leave me alone. I got my little blinkers on. I'm not looking at you because I've got this way to do this. And then a client comes in from the side and says, hey, I want you to do this method on my horse. And you're like, oh, dear, dear, dear. The only way you're going to look at that method is if you've made a commitment to learn all things hoof to yourself. And so I had done that. One of the surgeons at Auburn called me and said, I have a laminitis case here at the hospital. And this client, who's a board-certified human radiologist from South Alabama, he has found some people on the Internet that have a method that he wants to try on his horse. And I said to myself, oh, dear, the Internet, first of all. But then I said to myself, well, wait a minute. Let's look at it. Because... This might be this client helping us learn something because this client wants this done this way and he's going to employ these other professionals to show us what the way is. And then guess what? We get to be an observer of the process and not be responsible for the results. Oh, perfect situation for me. I'm not responsible for the outcome. Cool. I 
back and learn and not be responsible. It's not like I'm experimenting on this client's horse. This client asked me to do this or, or, or help him facilitate this. And now I get to be observer of a process and not be responsible for the results. What could be better than that? All right. So that's what happened. That's how I met Pete. Being an observer of the process and not being responsible for the results. Wow. So this client said, I want these people from hoofrehab.com to work on my horse and rehabilitate. And, and in fact, they're going to come pick her up at Auburn University and take her away and bring her back. I'm like, okay, whatever you guys want to do, I'm going to watch and see. And so this client sent Pete's brother-in-law, Alex, to the college. And I mean, really, it's kind of embarrassing how ignorant I was about Dr. Bowker's work at that moment. So this was September 2006. It was September 16, 2006. And they sent Alex Brandio to the vet school to get this mare and to show us what he was going to do. He came along and beveled her walls and put her in boots, and she was 13 degrees rotated on her hoof capsule. Okay, her hoof capsule was rotated kind of upward. She wasn't really tipped down that much, so it was more of a lamellar wedge lifting. She was a very fat horse and was documented insulin resistant. And so he beveled her walls and put her in pads, loaded her in a trailer, which I think is the kiss of death for a lot of laminitis cases, and it still is. But that kind of tells me about how unstable she was or wasn't because she survived a trip without crashing on the other end. So she wasn't that unstable. See what I mean? Her lamina strength had some integrity. And once he unloaded the wall and took the torque and the ground reaction force off the wall and put her on the pad and hauled her away, she didn't fall apart on him. And so he took her home and he brought her back April of 2007, completely derotated and sound and the little radiologist was there at the vet school. This was before digital x-rays. We were still taking film. And I, I don't know, this picture got lost, but it was, gosh, it was awesome. It's still in my head. The radiologist was riding her, a Pasofino, around the vet school on the blacktop, sound barefoot. And when he was out there riding her, we were developing his x-rays in those old dip tanks. And we walked outside with the x-rays. And he said, let me see them. And he was sitting on his founder horse, holding his x-rays up to the sun, looking at him. It was just like, while he was riding the founder horse, he was looking at the new x-rays. It was just like, and he was a radiologist. It was like, how this was such a cool uh, scene, you know, <laughs> that Alex had derotated this pony, this mare as a Paso completely. Yeah, it was amazing. So, you know, I'm, the day he left with her, I, I'm literally, as a veterinarian, thinking, well, good luck with that, buddy. You know, but it wasn't on me, you know, so I was just having a little education without being responsible for, for learning something. That's where it got me started. And then I was like, okay, I want to do that again. I'll do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Show me how to do that again. What did you do? You know, and so that's where this whole thing started. And, you know, again, that was the fall of 2006. And my husband talks about, you know, when I met you, you were kind of into feet, but you weren't obsessed. And now I've had to play second fiddle to horse feet our whole marriage because we got married. <laughs> I think a lot of husbands feel that way now. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for him. Um, you know, but the problem is, is he has to pick up the pieces when all this doesn't work. You know, and there's been so many times when I'm trying to help a laminitis horse and and, and Climbing the laminitis treatment ladder, you know, starting with these things that I've learned from Pete and Alex. And then when those things don't work, I'm climbing, climbing, climbing the treatment ladder. 
and then I'll go out of town and my poor husband being a vet, you know, he may have to be the one that goes and euthanizes the horse. So he gets the worst end of the deal, you know, because everything's going good. We don't ever call him and ask him for any help. (laughs) You know, it is, it's a horrible disease. So those horses that Alex taught me about and those horses in that, that, that mare is in that study. She's the first horse in that 14 case study. And so we did others and we had good results on multiple horses. That's wonderful. But there was also, you know, so there's three categories of laminitis. There's there's your EMS, your, your endocrinopathic horses, right? right? And those horses are broken into PPID and EMS or both. There's SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. And then there's support limb laminitis. Okay. Right. So those are the three main physiologic categories of laminitis. So the ones that respond the best to Pete's method, to the barefoot method without and grow off rotation without a tenotomy are the equine metabolic syndrome horses. They're the least complicated ones to do that with. In these three different cases, we have laminar failure in all three situations the endocrinopathologic, the SERS, and the support line laminitis. But I have a talk where I go through the literature and I have these slides that show histologically the difference between those three problems, those three pathophysiologic problems that cause the lamina to fail. And so endocrinopathologically, equine metabolic syndrome is actually different from PPID pathophysiology. The pathophysiology, the pathology of the lamina is different between EMS and PPID. In EMS, the pathologist will describe, in, if they cut the foot and look at it, they'll describe end caps on the dermal lamina. So these little keratin end cap plugs on the end. And Dr. Pollitt and I really haven't looked at his stuff in the last year and a half or two since I left Auburn. But insulin may be turning on mitosis in the dermal lamina and causing these end caps to form on the lamina that then push the dorsal hoof wall up and away and create that big lamellar wedge that you see on an x-ray that is this big gray area on an x-ray of a horse that's rotated. And so to me, EMS is almost like, it's more like it's a laminopathy initially before everything starts to be physically pulled apart and it turns into an itis. It starts out as a laminopathy. And that laminopathy with insulin rolling through their bloodstream and turning on this mitosis in the lamina and this thickening and this addition of these end caps to the dermis, pushing the hoof wall away, that just stacking of those end caps by the insulin in the bloodstream, to me, that's more like cancer than it is an inflammation initially. It's almost like cancer that you could turn off by turning off the insulin, which is cool. Yeah. But you can turn it off. You turn off the insulin and you stop the end caps and you stop the thickening of the dermis. And then you can grow down that new derotated hoof capsule past dermis that doesn't have the end caps. Cool. You can reverse the whole thing. You know, and I think that's what happened in especially the acute category within Pete and I's study. There's two different categories, chronic and acute. So in those acute cases, those were cases that did not have divergent growth rings when we met them. They did not have bone change. And so this was like their first full-on episode of inflammation after having this laminopathy due to obesity and insulin. Okay, and so those are the ones that just fit that first step of that laminized treatment ladder that I've discovered that, that respond to what the barefoot community does and what the... ECIR does, they they respond, man. 
And I even have, you know, there's one of those that Jesse and I are taking care of now, still today. He's in the study. He's gone on to do ranch work. He's grew his hoof capsule out. And, you know, right now he's back fat again because the owner doesn't stay with my program. He goes off on something else. And, you know, he's wanting to, you know, have the end caps for him again. He's wanting to flare again. So we're just getting back involved with him and trying to rehab him again. But but this time's not as bad as that first time was, you know. So there's there's that. There's the end caps and the effect of insulin on really mitosis. So that's your equine metabolic horses. Now, the PPID horses, there's another study out there that shows that their lamina form spindles. Now, I'm, now a horse can have both, Okay. They can have end caps and this other pathology, but they're saying that th- these horses have spindle-shaped lamina. So at the tip of a primary dermal lamina, you should have secondary epidermal lamina like sticking out with space between them for interdigitation with the epidermis. But on the PPID horses, all of those secondary epidermal lamina that are at the tip of primary dermal lamina, they all get squeezed together. It's like taking your hand and putting your fingers out like it should be and then squeezing it together so it makes a spindle, like a pointed tip of where the secondary epidermal lamina are all squeezed together into this spindle. Okay, that's really bad. And I don't think we know all we need to know about PPID to be able to reverse that. And that's why PPID horses are harder to deal with than equine metabolic syndrome horses because it's harder to turn that ACTH off and to try to turn down all those hormones that are associated with PPID, even with Herdline. I think a lot of people in the industry, after listening to Dr. Kellen, and I believe it wholeheartedly, there's a category, not all of them, but there's a category of those horses where we're going to learn, and academia is going to investigate this eventually, that iron is playing a role in the pathology, either at the brain level or at the laminar level or maybe both. Iron is exacerbating it and making it worse somehow. And that's either, like I said, either iron deposits in the brain or somehow the iron is affecting what I find is that it's affecting the quality of keratin that that horse can rebuild. And in humans, they found iron deposits in the brain of Parkinson's patients. And veterinarians have said, you know, internists have said that PPID is a neurodegenerative disorder, much like Parkinson's. And so in human literature, you can find a lot of reports where they're seeing iron deposits in the brain of Parkinson's patients. And so this is something that veterinarians have to look at. And it's complicating their recovery, but it also complicates their diagnosis. So I've got multiple cases where, like a horse doesn't have all of the clinical signs of PPID He just maybe has one of them, which might be mild, mild hirsutism. This one particular horse taught me a lot, and and I lost him. And it makes me sad because he was someone's baby. And he initially presented as though he was just a thin-souled horse that was an aged quarter horse who was not obese in any way, had no regional fat deposits anywhere on his body. And he just had a bit of a rough hair coat. And then souls. So I'm like, this is no problem. We'll just grow the soul back and we'll be rock and rolling. Well, no, no, no. This horse spiraled in a negative direction. And I climbed every step of the laminitis treatment ladder. We started with the barefoot method and the boots. And then uh, we made him air spaces under the rim of P3. His venograms were normal. 
they didn't, they had plenty of blood, but he would not grow soul, even with a normal venogram. And then his pain level started increasing, and he began rotating, and he just spiraled in a horrible negative direction. We ended up doing bilateral tenotomies on him uh, to no avail. Then he sank, and we had to euthanize him. Well, this was along the time where I was learning that iron might be playing a role. We had tested that horse multiple times for Cushing's PPID, and he, every time he tested the negative, he tested normal ACTH every single time. And I don't think he ever got put on pergolide because he kept testing normal. He even had a TRH stem and tested normal. I don't have, had no idea what was fueling this horrible disease on him. I had kept saying to the girl, you know, people are talking to me about iron. And you think it could be iron and you think we should do something about it or or we just wait for the test results to come back or blah, blah, blah. And so we had sent the iron off, the iron indices off to Kansas. And in the meantime, this horse, we weren't saving him and he was miserable. And the client did the right thing by the horse. She put her big girl panties on one morning and or one day. And she says, I've got to put him down. I can't do this to him. He's my baby. And so we put him down. After that, we got our our lab results back from Kansas and his ferritin was 2,200 and something. Wow. It was the highest ferritin I've ever seen. I don't know. I mean, I know I'm not like a special human or anything, but I honestly believe that like God puts these horses in my path to keep me humble and to keep me knowing that we don't know what we think we know. You have to always be looking at the whole picture, you know, and you can't ever be arrogant about thinking you can help them all with the knowledge base that you have. Because probably even when you try to learn everything you can learn, you still don't know it all. So, you know, we let this horse succumb without ever treating him for iron overload. But then he went to necropsy. And in necropsy, see, this is why I think God has a hand in these things. Because we weren't supposed to look at his brain. Because the client didn't want his head split. And we were trying to honor her wishes to not look at his pituitary gland. But then the paperwork got filled out wrong. And the pathologist did look at his brain. And it upset her very badly. And I feel terrible for her that that happened because she didn't want that done with him. But I learned so much because he did have a pituitary tumor. Wow. And his liver was right at the cutoff for toxic iron. So then, you know, and then it's like, well... Is the cutoff even correct for liver iron if you had a liver biopsy? If you had a liver biopsy in hand, and this horse with 2,200 ferritin, sky-high ferritin, his liver, you know, was just right at that cutoff. Now, what we didn't do was have histology and stain his brain tissues for iron. So, so now we've got that in the works on some horses to try to better understand that. But these cases are so touchy because these people love these horses, and so many times it's not appropriate to get those samples you know, on the cases that you know the most about and people have tried the hardest, they usually want to bury their horse at home and they don't yeah. want to do these. And so there's been seven or eight horses since that time that we might could have gained more information from, but it was it was not appropriate to ask to do those tests, you know. And this one, we only know this by mistake, by a paperwork mistake that allowed us to know that he really had PPID. PPID is just this other big can of worms that the pathophysiology is truly different from metabolic syndrome in the hoof and, of course, in the brain, in the pituitary gland. So there's that. You're going to hear a bit about tenotomies in the next section. 
A tenotomy is surgically transecting the deep digital flexor tendon in the mid cannon bone region. So basically, you're cutting the tendon to relieve its tension. There's a lot of varying opinions surrounding this procedure, and Dr. Taylor will touch upon times she has used this procedure for metabolic courses here, but later in the episode, you'll hear her circle back and talk more about tenotomies and other cases as well. There's been four horses that were PPID and or equine metabolic syndrome that I was not having luck with them. They were rotating even though I was doing the, the removal of ground reaction force. And those horses, it was one limb on two horses and both front limbs on the other horse were limbs that started out clubby when the horse got equine metabolic syndrome induced laminitis, the club foot. Okay, the club foot is one where you have a tendon spasm from probably of neurologic origin the horse's whole life. Yeah, And it's always been that foot that's been hard to keep the palmar angle reasonable it's always wanting to creep up above into the team into the you know 14 15 16 and you try to lower it you know and try to always maintain it i think that's being driven by the nervous system and the nervous system is is causing increased flexor tone on those horses and so there was this one little metabolic horse another paso very much like that first one i met that alex treated but when we looked at him all four feet were kind of clubby and the fun thing was he had a pasture mate that also foundered at the same time. I got laminitis at the same time. And that horse did not have high palmar angles, did not have clubby looking feet, did not have high heels. And she looked just identical to the horse that Alex treated with me originally. And so I'm looking at these two horses, exact same owner, exact same pasture. Here we go. We're going to go through laminitis treatment with this little set. And that one's got something going on with his flexor tone. And this one doesn't. Okay, which one's going to respond to the first step of the treatment ladder? The little mare that's good, that looks just like the one Alex treated. The other one, you're thinking, mm, this horse is likely to need some surgical intervention eventually. So we tried. We treated them both the same. It was cool. It was a little case study of two horses. And I don't know whether they had the same bloodlines or not. Mare and a gelding. The gelding had the clubby feet, and he did not respond. And he kept rotating, and he got convex soles, and he was super, super painful and laminitic stance while little Miss Pris over there is just rocking right along. You know, she's doing great. And so we ended up having to do bilateral tenotomies on that metabolic horse. Okay, that is the only horse I've ever done bilateral tenotomies on a metabolic horse. And because of the tenotomies, he became pain-free, and now he's riding sound. I can send you a video of him. And he responded beautifully to the synotomies and his legs are clean. You can't hardly tell they were done. So he's a perfect example of how well a synotomy can go. Dr. Sammy Pittman showed me one he did. It's his own personal horse now. I don't know whether it originally was or one that he adopted, but he's got a, it's either a paint or a porter horse in his pasture there at his farm in Collinsville, Texas, that he showed to me and my students. You cannot tell this horse had ever had a synotomy. His tendons are beautiful and he's 100% sound. And he's barefoot now with great feet. Sometimes when the nervous system is already ramped up to do drastic things to the hoof, even on a metabolic horse, I don't know what the cause of the laminitis was on Sammy's horse, but on mine, it was a metabolic horse. And now he's responded beautifully to the tenotomy. But, that, but they don't all respond beautifully to the tenotomy. Like they don't all respond beautifully to not doing the tenotomy. The other horse, okay, one other little category, I said there was on the flexor tendon thing where I've had two horses that were metabolic syndrome horses with laminitis that had one club foot. You, everybody knows that horse. Usually the right front was a club. And 
I would have the low foot responding nicely to the barefooted method that we described with the 14 obese horses in the study that we published. We'd have the low foot responding nicely and the high foot continuing to get a higher and higher palmar angle because you have a horse that's its whole life had this increased flexor tone on that leg. And sometimes you can palpate the flexor muscles. We had one the other day. The flexors on the on the on the club foot were huge, huge, and the extensors were weak. And it was you know you can palpate their muscles and tell the difference in their muscles. So so now you've got this thing, this mismatch of flexor extensor tone has been going on the horse's whole life, and he's been kind of teetering on the edge of of needing something done about it surgically, maybe since he was a foal. But the poor farrier's been getting by this horse for years and keeping him going. Now it gets laminitis. Now that's going to tip that club foot over the edge. And you may have to do something surgical on that leg. And so we've had two horses where on their club foot, we did an inferior check desmotomy during their laminitis rehab and had those horses stabilize. One of them went out of my practice area. I don't know if he stabilized long-term. The other one is still with me and she's fine. But she had to have, in addition to everything that we did in the in the fat 14, I call them the 14 fat foundered horses, the 14 obese horses study, in addition to all of those methods, we had to also do an inferior check desmotomy on her club foot leg and then just continue on with the same method. And it worked. And she has done great. You know, there's always that possibility that you might need a little surgical intervention to the tendons depending on the situation, depending on the severity of it and the situation. The next category is SERS-related laminitis, which is when a horse becomes laminitic due to infection or toxins in the bloodstream, fever, trauma, among other causes. Dr. Taylor explains why this can be especially difficult in some cases. So there's that category. So then we jump over to SERS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Yeah. They don't have, they don't have end caps. They don't have spindle-shaped lamina. They have a basement membrane meltdown. The basement membrane is basically dissolved by the inflammatory mediators that Pollock causes laminitis trigger factors because he knows we don't know all the names of all of them. So that's fair enough that someone of his stature would admit that we don't know the, all the names of all the inflammatory mediators exactly where this cascade begins. And so he may have figured that out in the last year and a half while I've been blind to the literature. But it doesn't really matter to these people out in the field. We have to try to stop the effect of the inflammatory mediators, laminitis trigger factors on the lamina while the horse is systemically ill. And the number one way to do that is the discovery by Pollitt and Van Epps that we keep their feet in ice. And really, in their studies, it was ice to the knees. So if you want their results, then you need to do it their way. That's the other thing. You know, we have to make sure if we're looking for someone's results that we do it exactly the way they do it, and we didn't modify it for our own convenience. So I see all these people modifying what Paula and Van Epps did for their own convenience. Well, that's stupid, because they've got all this research that shows it's ice, water, slurry to the knees. Now, Dr. Divers did do a study where he showed that ice water bags, five-liter bags on the feet, achieved a temperature very similar to the study where they had them ice to their knees. So because of divers' study, I think you can get away with an ice water slurry in five-liter bags or a swimming pool or a water trough just up to their felox. So that's fine. But it's got to be an ice water slurry. It's not appropriate to say, oh, I'm going to buy these 
ice things from this company and put them on the legs or whatever. And it's not an ice water slurry. But, you know, it might work, but it might not. And so if it doesn't work, that's your fault. You know, it's not because ice doesn't work. It's because you didn't do it right. Okay, so after Auburn started icing the hooves of horses that are systemically very, very ill, the numbers of laminitis cases from SIRS that they saw there just went to like two a year. Where when I was a resident, we had so many horses that got laminitis in the hospital because we didn't know to ice them. And so now those guys at Auburn are just diligent, diligent. Like if I had a really, really sick horse, I'd want it there because they're going to have that horse in ice and they're going to keep him in ice, you know, for days on end until the systemic inflammatory response is under control. Okay. So that's systemic inflammatory response. I like to equate that to burn injuries in people. So I like to think of this basement membrane meltdown as these laminized trigger factors are going to cause a chemical burn to the lamina if we let them get in the feet. And the way we can keep them out of the feet while they're in the horse's bloodstream is to ice the feet. And so Van Epps describes ice as a trifecta. It's vasoconstricting the feet while the blood has inflammatory mediators in it. Okay, it's anti-inflammatory. Ice is anti-inflammatory. And then it might be slowing the metabolic need of the lamina. So it might be a trifecta for the feet. Okay, so SIRS, you should be thinking systemic inflammatory response syndrome. First of all, you got to know that if systemic inflammatory response syndrome goes untreated, unchecked, or is so severe, it goes into another acronym called MODS, multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. And MODS in people is often fatal. Like in people, even in the best ICUs in America or, or anywhere in the world, you can't always stop MODS a lot of times. And so we got to realize that we can't do everything. You know, every horse cannot be saved, but lots of horses can be saved with appropriate interventions. And so they're learning more and more in internal medicine of how to save these SERS horses, how to prevent SERS from going to MODS. And so they've got these horses in the hospital on systemic treatment, on IV fluids, and in ice. And you got to give it to these doctors. Oftentimes, these horses have a contagious disease. They might have salmonellosis. And so these horses are in a isolation ward while these doctors are having to go in and out and prevent, you know, gown in, gown out. It's just, it's incredible what they do to save these horses. But sometimes that serves, let's say, let's call mods a grade five burn. Like if it was a, if you look up burns, like thermal burns on Wikipedia, you're going to have grade one to grade four burns. On a grade four burn, in that situation, the, like the skin would be burned completely off to the bone on a person. Okay. Now, if that happens, that arm or limb or whatever got burned is never going to look normal again, right? Because it's, you've taken all the soft tissue away, all the way to the bone. It's not ever going to look normal. It's probably never going to function normal, depending on what the function of that part of the body is. So now let's realize that a horse can almost die of mods or almost go to mods, but because of the medical intervention, he didn't quite go to mods, so he lived. He was going to have a grade four burn of his basement membrane if he hadn't been in ice. So they put him in ice, so now he only has a grade two burn. But he still got laminitis because he was going to die or have a grade four burn. But with all the medical interventions, they pushed him back to a grade two burn. So now he's treatable with his laminitis. His basement membrane burn may be treatable. 
where it wouldn't have been treatable if it had gone to a grade four without him getting iced. See what I'm saying? Yeah. That all depends on how severe the systemic inflammatory response syndrome was. So let's say a horse has a fever, and it's just a mild fever. It lasts for a couple of days. It goes unnoticed, and he only gets enough inflammatory mediators in his bloodstream to be a grade one burn, and he didn't get iced. Well, I reckon a horse can recover on his own from a grade one burn. And so those are those horses back in the day that I was watching recover on their own without any help that just had a little bit of a burn. Just like a grade one burn would be I touched a hot pot in my kitchen, and it hurt like bad for like five hours. And I was walking around with a glass of ice holding my finger in it because every time I take my finger out, I'd start crying nearly. You know, it takes it like six hours to quit doing that or you fall asleep with your finger in a bowl of ice water. You wake up the next morning, you're okay. But then that makes a blister. And then that blister over a period of days comes off and the tissue under it is still pretty normal. And then it heals over. And then six months from now, nobody can tell that I burned my finger. Okay. So what's that, that equivalent to in horses? That would be mild fever that had some inflammatory laminitis trigger factors in the bloodstream. They went to the feet. The horse might have been ouchy, ouchy a couple of days. Somebody put him in some hoof boots and gave him some butte for three days and he was fine. Okay. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then he grows out a growth ring on his feet. You see the growth ring though. You see maybe even a blood stain in the capsule as he grows that off. You see what I mean? And so, but Mother Nature's going to heal that without us monkeying around. And we can take credit for it if we're watching it, if we want to. Mm-hmm. But she was going to fix him anyway. Yeah. Like some doctor could take credit for fixing my burn on the skillet in here if he wanted to. But my body was going to fix that anyway. Right. So where we can help these horses is by getting them in ice and take a little credit And I give Auburn a lot of credit or any veterinary hospital that's ice and horses. I give them a lot of credit for the laminitis cases that we're not seeing, the laminitis cases that they're preventing. And then the ones that they do come to me with are often manageable. Because they iced him, it didn't go to a grade three burn and it isn't manageable. So I got a story about that, too. There's this cool little horse. He's a little quarter horse that uh, got sick at Auburn. He had anterior enteritis, and the owners took him to Auburn, and he nearly died of SIRS. He nearly went into mods. He was in ice for days on end, but he still got laminitis. And so then he was kicked off to me as he came out of the hospital with rotation, and we try to do the hoof trim that unloads the wall and put soft pads on him, but he's rotating at us. He's actually a, a medial sinker, me, sinking medially and rotating medially into his medial toe region. And so at that point, you know, we come in with another step of the laminitis treatment ladder. And what we did is we have this little method we called soft clogs with an airspace. So we made a little soft clog that had a little airspace under where his bone was was tipping to and kept him moving, kept him walking, which walking is often not recommended on a mods horse or a SERS horse. But on this particular one, he was probably just a grade two burn. He wasn't a grade three or a four. He was a grade two. Well, maybe he was even a one and a half, and I'm taking too much credit for it, you know. But anyway, we made air spaces, and we kept everything soft on his feet, and we did not wedge him and kept him moving. 
and he actually recovered. And I've watched him. I can send you pictures right now. This is, I don't know, it's probably five years later. My kid rodeos with him. He Another kid rising. That horse has won two healing saddles in the last three weeks wow. for this kid and multiple buckles. I'll send you a picture of everything that little horse has won. They put it on Facebook yesterday. And when I get to see him and know that I was looking at a convex soul and a cracked soul in December of, I don't remember what year it was. I'd have to look it back. But but since then, he's recovered. He grew completely out, derotated, got soul depth. He's 100% sound, and he's he's raising a little horseman. Great little roper rides him and is winning all kinds of stuff and about to go to national finals. That horse will be at Little Bridge's national finals. And he makes me so happy to see him there, knowing where we came from, you know. But I had to do some extra stuff. I had to do the the pads with the air spaces taped on to give him a little relief to the dermis when he was actually rotating. And along about that time frame, another horse that was a fever, a horse that had a really high fever and nobody iced her feet at that point in time. The, the whole idea of icing was just becoming widespread knowledge of icing a horse that has a systemic inflammatory response so that they don't get laminitis. And at that point, you know, well, there's still people that aren't icing them, but they should be. The ones that have a systemic, that are systemically ill with the fever, systemic inflammatory response, they need to be in ice in the prodromal stages to prevent rotation and prevent damage to the lamina. Well, this mare didn't get iced. And so she had a really high fever and she actually sunk. And Pete and I tried to do this whole method that we've done on these other 14 horses and she didn't respond. And, and, you know, and he said to me, I, I'm not used to having horses come at the bone come at me like this. And I said, you know, I, I like, I know. I mean, you know, so that horse taught me don't ever do a SIRS horse without a venogram. And the client had to be a believer. And the horse had to be a certain sort of horse to get through it. And that goes into, I, I've never saved a SIRS horse that was what I call an, an introvert, what Pirelli calls an introvert, a lazy horse, a horse that prefers standing still over movement. The horses that love movement, that they're default, if nothing's happening, I'm moving. Those are the ones that survive SIRS, you know, without a tenotomy. So there's so many factors that come involved, you know. A lot of those SIRS horses, the most straightforward way to save them is the tenotomy because the lamina, the basement membrane, is so severely injured that has no integrity because on those endocrinopathic horses, even though they have the end caps and the spindle cells, there's a little bit of integrity to the laminar attachment still. And there's no gas shadow on the radiograph that's parallel to the hoof wall. These service horses will often have a gas shadow, meaning air. The dermis has left the epidermis and there is nothing. There is no laminar connection. Okay. And those are the sorts of horses that are going to need a tenotomy to save them. So what happens to the tendon after the tenotomy? Does it actually, can it heal? I mean, I just don't know. I mean, obviously you're, you're stopping that tension because you're, you're cutting the tendon, but then is it safe for them, like you were saying, to go back into riding? If it goes well, yes. Like I said, these two horses I'm telling you about are completely sound. So the tendon, when you cut the tendon, it, it'll pop apart about two centimeters. And you put them in a derotation shoe. They have to be in a shoe for a period of time, about probably 16 weeks, 12 to 16 weeks at least. They've got to be in the derotation shoe to keep their toe from flipping up. But you're trying to set them back down to a palmar angle parallel to the top of the shoe. And, and the shoe that Dr. Redden taught me to use is a five-degree wedge. So they'll be standing at a five-degree PA, 
with their bone parallel to the top of the shoe and that the tendon will be popped apart two centimeters. So it's just a big hole, a big gap where the two ends of the blunt tendon is like holding your two fingers apart two centimeters. There's just a big air, air space. So if you have a very, very atraumatic surgery and you keep the bandages really snug against that area where you have that break in the tendon, and I like to keep the horses stalled for a month because you're trying to minimize movement, minimize any irritation, minimize any edema or swelling in that tendon region. Then if everything goes your way, you can get it to heal back with a scar, a piece of scar tissue that looks different if you were to cut it out of there. It's just white. It doesn't have normal fibrils in it. But you can get it to scar back with a piece of scar tissue that externally you can't tell this horse has ever had a tenotomy. So these two horses I'm telling you about, there's millions of other ones out there that have had good luck with autonomy. If it goes well, then they have a normal life. It's a normal deal. But it doesn't always go well. But neither was the laminitis treatment wasn't going well when you came to this either. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so you can find these horses. Like I've got another one. I've had a couple others. Like I did another tenotomy on a mare recently, and I didn't save her. And then I've got another one right now that the tendon's all scarred up and gnarled up. And so she's re-rotating. She's pulling her t- her her heels coming back up and her toes going back down because that scar tissue, if it doesn't heal very tight and clean, then that scar tissue will shorten again on you later. It'll wad up into like a knot and then it'll pull on the bone and cause your pulmonary angle to increase again. So I got one that that's happening to me right now. that makes me sick to my stomach. You know, she probably will not make it. And the owner is struggling, you know, with the decision that things are aren't going like we want them to go, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even doing all these things, sometimes you lose, you know? And, and then you never know, why did I lose that one? I mean, as long as I know why I lost a horse, I've learned to accept those failures better. If I know what did I do or not do in a timely fashion that caused the demise of this horse, you know? But when I can't figure out why one, two cases that seem exactly the same go a different direction, then that's really, really frustrating and sad because then I don't ever know what my lesson was and what was my educational process there that I failed to learn. Uh, and I blame them on myself, you know. And so it kind of makes me not want to do much laminitis anymore because of the failures, because it, it's so hard on me and my family when I when I'm going through one of these, you know, yeah, it, it makes me think that at some point I'm not going to take those cases anymore, but, but for my own health, for my own mental health, I'm going to have to stop at some point. I would like for what I've learned to be about the different methods to somehow help other horses. You know, I guess I need to write a book about all the methods and all the horses. I don't know, but yeah, that'd but, be great, but there's no way to, I don't know. I don't know. There's any way to get it all on paper where anybody could, make heads or tails of it and use it to help other horses <laughs> you know what i mean because it just spins in your head and you're like well maybe it was that maybe it was that you lay awake at night trying to sort out you know oh my gosh i didn't do that at that time oh my gosh that's what's caused this horse to die i have to take responsibility for that and then i just lost it i've lost two frisians this year and both of them were sirs horses and it really it really hurts me but i, I for one thing, I think all the ice research was done like thoroughbreds and border horses, I think, and standard bred horse, standard bred horses. A lot of those research horses were standard bred horses. And I don't think there's ever been a laminar cooling study done on drafts. So I actually have a theory that the draft hoof wall is so thick 
that the ice can't get their dermis cold enough during SIRS. And so those freesians, I've had three freesians that foundered at Auburn while they were being iced. And I saved one of the three, and the other two didn't make it. One of them we did tenotomies on, it still didn't make it. The other one we had, had gone where we were about to do the tenotomy, and the owner decided, no, I'm not going to put it through the horse through this. But I'm thinking the ice doesn't work on those big, thick, hoof-walled horses like it does on a lighter bred horse or a thinner capsule. Yeah. And so on those horses, a draft that's had SIRS, you might be dealing with a grade three burn even though you iced them, which means you might not be able to save that horse, you know, Yeah. no matter what you do. So, you know, you know, there's other people that do even more things to try to save them, hoof-wall ablations and things. And, you know, I've never gone all the way that far. Or transfixation casting, where they'll actually cast the limb and put pins in the cannon bone and let the cast and the cannon bone support the limb while the hoof has a chance to recover for a period of time. But I've never gone that far. But there are people that have had success with that. And that's a big commitment from the owner, financially and emotionally. I don't know. I wrote a little thing on recognizing the need for euthanasia. Yvonne Wells, it's on her, the horse's hoof, her blog. It's just a little periodical. It's actually, a, you know, it's like a journal, online journal. Anyway, I put something in there and, and I put it in there while I was working on horses that the owners couldn't, couldn't stop. You know, they just didn't recognize the need for euthanasia. And sometimes I'll look like a big dummy when I walk in on one of these cases that's just crashing and burning and nobody's going to save it or could have saved it. And they call me and then I come in and try to help them. And the owner really needs to euthanize their horse, but they won't. And I'll stay on board trying to help them because I figure, you know, they've already been through five or six situations. And so maybe hopefully I'm as able to help the horse as anybody. So I shouldn't abandon the horse by telling the owner, I'm not working for you because you need to euthanize your horse. So I'll stay on board trying to continue to help because knowing I'm not going to win, telling the owner I'm not going to win. And then somebody else comes in from the outside. Ooh, look at that disaster. Wow. How did you let that happen? You know, we shouldn't be doing that to each other, you know, because you don't know the whole history. You don't know this whole convoluted story, you don't know, and I don't know whether the horse was even savable from the get-go. And then, you know, whoever ends up touching it last, it's a hot potato. They end up, you know, taking some kind of blame. That's just wrong. I mean, nobody's out there trying to help a laminitis horse, trying to hurt it. And they're all, everybody's working within their own knowledge base, you know, and some of these horses aren't savable, and we all need to be respectful of what the other ones tried to do, you know, and not get involved until we're asked to get involved. I mean, and that's the thing is there's been some cases where, you know, I want the owner to ask me to get involved. I don't want to go begging to be involved in these things. I want the owner, and I'd like it if the owner, vet, and barrier asked me for help. That's what the ideal situation is, and keep everybody in the loop, you know. Right. But, you know, there's so many horses out there that no one person can, can attend to all of them. And so it takes a large body of practitioners to take care of the horses. And every practitioner has a different experience that brought them to where they are. I mean, I make errors in judgment, you know, thinking I know what category the horse is in, what's going to best suit this horse. But I still make mistakes every day, you know, and you just got to own your mistakes 
we're human. Holy mackerel. You know, you're going to make mistakes. And, and nobody makes them maliciously, I don't think. Right. Next, you'll hear Dr. Taylor talk a bit about supporting limb laminitis. This can happen when a horse has an injury that results in a non-weight-bearing limb, forcing the horse to overload the opposing foot. Dr. Andrew Van Epps, a veterinarian specializing in laminitis at New Bolton in Pennsylvania, has hypothesized that this is caused by a lack of perfusion or circulation in the hoof. Dr. Van Epps has found that load cycling, or the horse lifting and loading its foot, is what allows circulation in the hoof capsule. If the horse is constantly weighting a foot, perfusion is affected, and this might be the cause of supporting limb laminitis. Dr. Taylor talks a bit about it and how we might prevent it. Yeah, and you mentioned the supporting limb laminitis. Have you worked on many of those? I know it's pretty rare, right? Yeah, it's not uncommon, but it's not as common as these other ones. The most common is endocrinopathic nowadays. SIRS is becoming less common, thank the Lord. And then support limb laminitis, yes, I have worked on those. And those, I think, the, the etiology of those, to me, seems to be an avascular necrosis from the start, from the get-go. Because the horse's, Dr. Van Epps showed that the horse's foot is perfused when it's lifted, when it's in the air. And that may be the reason all the walking we do allows the blood flow to get back in the foot. It is the reason that walking them perfuses the foot because every time it's in flight is when it's getting its blood. But on a support lamb laminitis horse, the horse hasn't lifted the foot in days, you know? And so an avascular necrosis is the main thing that causes that to happen. So I have found that this is one where I believe you should wedge them preventatively with Dr. Redden's ultimate cuff. And you can do that on an early SIRS horse too. The, The ultimate cuff. Okay, so let's talk about this is a really touchy subject. Let's talk about Dr. Redden's wedge cuff. And what does that do? That thing kicks the deep out of tension. First of all, that cuff, that ultimate wedge cuff, was designed for horses with a zero palmar angle because it was created in thoroughbred country. Most thoroughbreds have a zero PA. And it was really, to me, designed for horses that are starting with a zero PA and have a SERS-induced laminitis and maybe a grade two or a grade three burn to their dermis from SIRS. Okay. It wasn't designed for horses that are starting out really with a high PA, although they have modified it to use it on that. The people that use that extensively have modified it to use it. And people have really good luck stabilizing laminitis horses doing this when they're not doing the whole barefoot thing. So people have good results with that thing. But some people misuse it, just like the Jenison. Some people use it wrong. And then if someone who doesn't believe in wedging comes along and sees someone using it wrong and sees that it's gone wrong, then they're like, oh, wedges, all wedges are bad. Well, that's not true. Okay, all wedges aren't bad. They have to be used correctly. So this is a place where I still use the cuff right away. Okay, so you got a zero PA and you put that cuff on and it puts the horse to a 20 degree PA and you can feel the slack and the deep in the horse's leg immediately. And the other thing is, is if you put that horse in that wedge he might have been a horse that was standing with his forelimbs forward. He'll immediately come to vertical if the wedge is appropriate. He'll come to vertical for you. And that's telling you that that horse appreciates what you just did for his tendon tension. So I personally think that any horse that's standing with his forelimbs extended is telling you, help me with my tendon tension right now or do something. You know, I'm in pain. 
Now, that might mean lowering the heels and unloading the toe wall. That might work for that horse. But if it doesn't, if he, if after you've done what you do, he's still standing with his forelimbs extended, then I think that's that horse telling you, I have too much deflexor tendon tension. And if you put that horse in a wedge, sometimes that horse will come back vertical. So if they're standing vertical, vertical forelimbs, then I'm saying to myself, this horse is okay with his current tendon tension because he can stand vertical. He doesn't have to extend his forelimb to get tension off his tendons. So I let the horse tell me if his tendon tension is too much or not. But anyway, the wedge is used to give you slack in the tendon temporarily while you let everything else settle down. And then you would slowly decrease the wedge. But what's kind of really cool is the height of the back of that wedge. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's about two centimeters. That height just happens to be the exact distance that the tendon will pop apart if you cut the tendon. If you do a tenotomy, that's the same distance the tendon ends come apart. So I think that's kind of cool. So it's it's like a conservative tenotomy, really. It's saying, you know, I'm going to try to get the tension out of this tendon without cutting it. They can eventually transition out of that when they're more stable? Yeah. Yeah. It's a temporary measure. Right. Like the tenotomy horses, the goal is to get them back barefoot. And the ones that I've seen that have done well are back barefoot. It's just a point in time where you're going through this process to try to save the horse and save the structures so that the foot can be rehabilitated back to barefoot. So same with these horses. And so it puts blood flow into the front of their foot. I did a little study one time and I never published. That's my problem. I did studies I never published just because of me being ADD and all the responsibilities at the university. But I did a study one time where we gave horses technesium. We did bone scan. It's a bone scan is when you give them a radioactive isotope. And we, in this situation, we, we did it where we labeled red blood cells with a radioactive isotope. And we put them in, uh, standing them down, and we put them in the, in the cuff, in the reddened cuff. And what we saw was the blood go to the front of the foot and kind of be squished out of the back of the foot. So we're dumping the blood to where we need it most, essentially, with that thing. And at the same time, giving them slack in their tendon, like a conservative tenotomy. So the tendon can't pull on the front of the foot as much because there's laxity in the tendon. I have seen that apparatus work in the proper hands, used correctly. It works well to get a horse, a SERS horse, through the initial time frame and try to not need a tenotomy. So that when they're using that, they're trying to do like emergency first aid for the tendon and the dermis on a SERS horse to not have to go to tenotomy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so we were talking about support limb laminitis. So I actually use that on support limb laminitis and have had really good luck with it. But what you have to think about on a support limb horse is support limb horses will crush their medial side worse than their lateral side. It's because the medial side of the foot is holding more weight of the horse than the lateral side. There's all the weights over the medial side. So right away, you know that those horses are going to have a tendency to be medial sinkers. And so what I found is that if I put the horse in a red and ultimate cuff to achieve a 20 degree PA, okay, so all these things are specific to PA, just like Pete's thing. When we do the the 14 obese horses, we never walk those horses if their palmar angle was greater than 10. That's in there. People pay attention to that. Probably not. And then they probably go walk a 15-degree PA horse and hurt him. You have to be, you have to, all is very specific. So when you're using a red and ultimate cuff, the point is to create a 20-degree PA to the ground plane. Okay, now if you have to modify something 
because this horse was already four degrees PA, then you got to modify something. But the point was to make it 20 degree to the ground plane. So if you do that on a support limb, and what I have found, if you come in and do what we call a proximal hoof wall uh, grooving on the medial quarter, so that you make the proximal wall flexible and not rigid on the medial quarter, then I have found those horses do really, really well and don't even get laminitis at all, usually. We had one of those at, at Auburn one time. He had like a catastrophic injury. I think it was a P2 fracture. And a surgeon came on that believed in doing preemptive things for the support limb. And we put him in this red and ultimate cuff and did i think can't remember at that point whether we were doing a groove on the media wall but anyway he stayed it, it happened all in october and he stayed in the hospital all the way through like february we had him in the cuff and he never got laminitis while he was in the cuff from october to february and he never was really weight buried on the other leg because it wasn't really going that great on the other leg and he never got laminitis on the support leg Eventually, surgeons rotated around, and there was another surgeon that didn't believe that the cuff was necessary because there's no proof of it. There's no scientific proof. All this stuff is, that's the problem with foot stuff, is there's no controlled studies on most of this stuff. And so you can't blame people for not believing because there's no controlled studies. You know, I don't blame a guy. Um, but anyway, he didn't believe it was helping. Anyway, he took it off. And two weeks later, the horse got laminitis in that foot. Hmm which is about the time frame that they get support limb laminitis. So I feel like that the cuff was preventing it. Now, if the horse has a weak digital cushion and a crushed heel, and you put him in that cuff, and I've done this too, you can cause avascular necrosis of the medial quarter. And so to prevent that, that's why I started grooving the medial quarter. But the weaker the digital cushion is, the more likely you're gonna cause a complication with the wedge in the medial quarter. And you'll get an avascular necrosis if you just sit there and watch it happen and don't do something to prevent it. There's a series of slides floating around out there where I did that. I crushed the medial quarter of a mare with a cuff and some farriers got a hold of it and they show it in their slideshows about how bad the cuff is and how it'll do that. You know, so that was my learning curve that was exploited to the world. We shouldn't do that to people. Yeah. You know, I mean, we can do that to people, but, but we should be saying, you know, are in this situation, why did we have a complication that was worse than the disease? I mean, anytime you do something therapeutically, you got to pay the price generally. I mean, they say that generally therapeutic shoes have secondary complications. Now, that's what we try in the hoof rehab world to prevent. We want the foot to be getting healthier and healthier and healthier all the time instead of the therapeutic application making the foot worse in some manner. You know, that's what we're trying to avoid all the time. But we all have a learning curve, you know. And right. there's, there's always that horse out there that you hope nobody takes pictures of and puts them all over the internet, Yeah, you know, and we shouldn't do that to each other because whoever was doing it was either at some point in their learning curve that they didn't understand the application they were using or they used it too long. It was like the Genesis, you know, or Butte, Field View Zone, Field View Zone. I use it all the time, but you can kill a horse with it in three days if you don't use it correctly. At some point, you got to realize, okay, I can't keep doing that. And that's kind of the way a lot of these applications are. I'm going to do it to get the horse over this hurdle, but I know that the possible complication is this other thing, and I'm going to be either do extra measures to prevent that from the get-go. Oh, wait, I, I didn't tell the whole story. I didn't tell the whole story about that. So that mayor crushed her medial quarter. I was just all upset about the fact that I had done that. 
And so I went to a, a Dr. Redden clinic and I was trying to figure out why did your shoe do that? Why, how did I keep from doing that? And he was like, well, I just don't worry about it. I'll just do a proximal wall resection when that happens in that area. And I'm like, I don't want to have to do a proximal wall resection in that area. I don't want it to happen. And there was this guy sitting beside me in the audience when I was asking this question. And I do not know his name. He was from the Northeast somewhere. And I can't even remember who he was. Or I probably never knew his name. But anyway, he punches me and he goes, I haven't had that problem. And I said, you haven't had that problem with the cuff? He goes, no. I said, what do you do? You know, the first thing he said to me, he said, well, I just put Pete Ramey's trim on the foot before I put it in the cuff. (laughs) (laughs) And so I do that now. I forgot to mention that. When I use the cuff, it's a really important thing. You know, I can't believe I forgot to tell you that. So when I use the cuff, I put the beveled trim on that, especially on that medial quarter. So I don't want the medial quarter wall to touch the hard plastic on the cuff. And I have to, I have slides of that pictures of looking down the back of the horse's foot and you can see the bevel in there so that there's airspace under the medial quarter wall to prevent that avascular necrosis of that medial quarter by ground reaction force pushing up through the wall and shoving the hoof wall toward the dermis. So I'll not only put Pete Ramey's bevel on it, but I also groove the proximal capsule so that it's flexible so that the dermis doesn't have any hoof wall pushing into that medial quarter dermis and since doing that i haven't had another case like the one that is shown to everybody in the world at certain farrier meetings where i crushed the dermis on the medial quarter of a mare i remember all these horses names i don't want to say them but wow and owners owners that have tolerated my learning curve yeah, but the best thing is an owner that wants to do something and you not be responsible and you get to watch whether something works or doesn't work and not be responsible. But the main thing you need to make sure if you're observing that process is that the process was done exactly like it was intended. Right. Not done with secondhand information or partial information or or the other thing is is trying to fit round pegs and square holes. If you're trying to force somebody to do something that they don't want to do, then you're not going to have the best results because they're not going to be striving to do it exactly the way it was designed to be used. You know, so there's no point in that. So you've got to find a team around a horse that's all working within their current comfort zone or within a methodology that they really do want to learn. They're not having shoved down their throat. If they're having something shoved down their throat, they can't do it correctly. And they're best off to just say, I don't want to be involved in this. Yeah. Or say, I don't have enough information to be involved in this. And if I'm going to be involved in this, I want you to get the correct information and then let's watch it transpire when it's done the way it was designed to be used. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I'm always so blown away whenever I hear you talk or whenever I talk to you about just like how vast your knowledge base is and also how many experiences you've had and the amount of research you do, because obviously there are so many people who either you know, veterinarians or any of us that either can't do research because of funding or, you know, don't have that ability. So it's so cool to be able to, to talk to you about all these things. I do actually have to, to get going, but do you have any, you know, sort of closing advice for horse owners or hoof care providers or even veterinarians that are, you know, struggling with hoof cases? I guess, you know, try to find a team and everybody's on the same page. Don't try to force you know, things down people's throats unless, you know, if you have an idea that you want to try on your horse, tell your vet and your farrier, look, I want to try this new thing. And if it doesn't work, it's going to be on my back as the owner. 
it was my decision to try it. And if you'll help me try it, I'm not going to hold you responsible for my bad idea if it doesn't work. And don't beat up on yourself if it doesn't work. Don't beat up on yourself. Nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know where some of these cases are going until we get there. And that's the bad thing. In each turning point, you can try to do what you think is the best way to go. You don't know unless you have a crystal ball exactly where you're going to end up until you get there. Because there's always that horse out there that's not going to respond like the rest of them. And and you come back along, don't beat up on the person that's been there because it is almost impossible to ever get the whole story. And even if you have the whole story, sometimes you don't really know where everything went south. And that's the other thing is a lot of these horses are like hot potatoes. Let's take a horse that's in the grand scheme of things, he's not savable, but nobody knows that. And so all these different people are trying to help him. Well, it's like a hot potato. Whoever touched him last is what who everybody wants to blame if something goes bad, you know? And that's a bad way to look at it because sometimes they weren't savable anyway. You can't save them all. If you think you can save them all, you just hadn't been doing this long enough. Pete told me that a long time ago. You know, and then on the barefoot thing, there's barefoot non-responders that don't respond to barefoot. That's a whole other topic. You know, they don't respond probably because their foot is so lacking in mass and depth front to back that they can't create a landing that is therapeutic to the hoof. And or the owner's not willing with the proper hoof wear on to do the miles that need to be done to make the horse, to help the horse respond to the barefoot rehab method. Because the owner is not willing to put in the time. You know, they're their own worst enemy. You're trying to help them. You're setting the horse up for success. But then if you don't put the miles in, then you're not going to get the response you're looking for. Yeah. So, you know, the owners have to be willing to put in that extra effort if they want the results that they're looking for, you know. And, and some of them, they might be willing, but they can't. Physically, they can't. Financially, they can't. And that's Okay. Just admit that you can't and say, I'm going to have to live with the foot like it is, or I'm going to have to euthanize the horse because it doesn't have quality of life like it is. And accept the obstacles as reality, and I can't, I just can't. I can't walk the horse an hour a day, okay? Well, I can't. That's okay. You know, not everybody can. And it's not like a sin or, you just have to accept what the current situation is sometimes and then make a decision that's in the best interest of the horse based on what you're able to offer. Yeah. And be satisfied with your decision. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I have like so much I would love to talk to you about, but obviously, you know, I feel like I could talk to you all day long. Again, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Okay, you too. Thanks. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.